0: With me in the scanner studio today are Charles Duell, who's president of Middleton Place Foundation, and Tracy Todd, who is the vice president and chief operating officer of the foundation. And Middleton Place Foundation supports Middleton Place. Gentlemen, welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. And, of course, we're talking about Middleton Place on the Ashley, just outside of Charleston, one of America's most beautiful and famous gardens. It's been there for over, really, three centuries, or close to three centuries. started in 1741. 275 years. So, Charles, you're descended from the Middletons. You inherited Middleton Place. It had been open to the public, but you really expanded its mission. Well, the gardens have been open to the public since the 1930s, and... uh,
1: I inherited the property in 1969-70, in, uh, and we lived there until 1974. That's when uh, I created the Middleton Place Foundation, which now owns the entire entity, which is a National Historic Landmark. The National Historic Landmark is a little over 100 acres, but it has land around it that protects it. And the total is is about seven
0: thousand acres. You wanted to to do this so that the future is not dependent upon the whims of whoever it inherited, but that this will be preserved for generations. Well, that was the the main reason is that we really felt that I say we, being our family,
1: uh, felt clearly that it wasn't a matter of ownership. It was an opportunity for stewardship, and that the most important aspect of Middleton Place is really history. Mm-hmm and that its history belonged to the people, if you will, to the public of South Carolina and the nation. And uh, that was even accelerated by the fact that the crippling uh, effect of estate taxes in today's world makes it very difficult to hold on to a large property that has a high level of maintenance. And it really would, be, would, not, would not have been very practical to, to just keep it in the family forever and ever. So the family stewardship continues, but the 100% ownership is in the foundation that I put together in 1974 and began functioning in 1975, which makes this year of 2015 the 40th anniversary of the foundation's work that began really opening the house museum to the public, adding it to, to the garden and the plantation stable yards that was brought on
0: stream in between. You actually, for about five years, you and your family lived on the, right. the place. What was it like living in a public facility? Well, the, the house, Walter, is actually very
1: comfortable, and it worked well. It's a house that my grandparents uh, restored and moved into in 1925 and lived there until through their lives, which was in this into the 50s and 60s. And uh, we lived there and had three children that uh, grew up there, a fourth child that came just at the time we moved. And the three children, you know, loved it, and it was an a interesting and, and beautiful place to live. But there were downsides, you know, it was something of a fishbowl. Uh-huh. And the children often were walking out in the garden, and the visitor would come up and ask them if they were lost or what they were doing. So... Uh, it took a little adapting,
0: but maybe uh trained them in good social intercourse. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can see about the the, the living in a fishbowl, and of course, folks who live downtown in Charleston almost have that now. With the
1: that's very cause true. push
0: you, you and Sally are living downtown now. You and I have had conversations before, and you know, I know you inherited the, the place from your grandparents. But you had an interesting life growing up. You've got a Western connection through your mother's side of the family. So let's talk a little bit about Charles Duell. I think you're a really interesting person.
1: Well, Walter, uh, you flatter me, but... Uh, but No, seriously. Well, the, 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 my involvement, uh, or the way I got to Middleton Place, if you will, is that my father <clears throat> was a book publisher in New York and uh, took my mother to live in New York, and so I was born in New York in 1938, long before you were even thought of. Not too far. <laughs> and lived there in my childhood, but came a a lot to Charleston. In those days, it it wasn't uh, coming for a long weekend, but it was coming for a couple of weeks because Uh it was a long train ride. So I had frequent contact with my maternal grandparents in Charleston and uh, was, I'm sure, taken in by it. But as you suggested, I did have uh, some other diversions or educational opportunities if you want to look at it that way growing up I went to Porter Military Academy in Charleston for one year mm-hmm. and uh, the following summer I was going to camp in Maine I was kind of uh, you know one of uh, kind of like a little Lord Fauntleroy in New York and every boy my age went to camp in Maine in the summertime and I was getting prepared to go when my uncles from the West, from Wyoming and Colorado came to visit they flew back in their little airplane and they said young man why don't you come to Colorado instead of going to camp in Maine this summer it would be a different experience for you and I said well I I would like to but I've seen horses in central park in new york and I think they're terrifying and I understand you ride horses in Colorado so I'll make a deal with you. You know, young New Yorkers are always deal makers. <laughs> and I said, if you'll if you'll promise I don't have to ride a horse, I'll come to Colorado with you. And they said, sure, you don't have to ride a horse. I had a very wise uncle. So I hopped in the back of this speechcraft Bonanza, and it took three or four days uh, puddle jumping to fly out there in those days. But we made it and got there, and uh, I had a group of, of first cousins, my uncle's children, who were became surrogate siblings if you will and every day they would get up and get on their horses and go out and ride on this is a ranch of about 8,000 acres in southern Colorado and they would go out and and find bum calves or fix fence or do something interesting and come back and I can clearly remember the lunches where they would come back and sit around this large table and and have lunch and, and be full of energy and excited and talking about what they'd done during the day and then they'd, we'd finish lunch and they'd say goodbye and hop back on their horses and go out for some more of this kind of cattle tending. And I would go back to a book I was reading and flip pages. And anyway, after about four days, I, I cornered my Uncle Holly and said, Uncle, I'll tell you, if, if you have a really gentle horse that I might try, I'll give it a shot. And so they trotted out this... this kind of chubby little black horse. And I got on board and and went out gingerly and then uh, kind of through the summer, got more and more accustomed to it. And long story short, by the end of that summer, which was the summer of about 1948, 40, 1948 summer, uh, I thought I was at least potentially the greatest cowboy that the state of Colorado had ever <laughs> experienced. And that started a uh, converted relationship with horses that followed up when I came to South Carolina because at Middleton Place in the early 70s, I got involved in starting a fox hunt mm-hmm. that became a, a registered, recognized fox hunt. And I was a master of fox for 25 years and really loved it. And now my wife thinks it's too dangerous to go flying over fences, so I don't do that anymore.
0: <laughs> well, l- listen to Sally. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right.
2: Tracy, a little bit of your background, please. South Carolina, born and bred, uh, lived up in, in Conway, Horry County areas where I grew up. And uh, came and down to the college, to the College of Charleston, and began working for the foundation as an undergrad. Uh, it was a, it was one of my sort of history club jobs to begin with. Well, I was
0: going to say you you know over the years that I've known you, your titles have changed.
2: That's right. Because you,
0: in the past you were really associated with the house museum more, and now you are the chief operating officer of the foundation. That's correct. Did your undergraduate education prepare you to do something like that, or you just grew into it?
2: I think a little little of both. Um, my, my undergraduate. Preparation was really in was really in, in history and education, mm-hmm. and and at the time, you know, I, I was sort of torn between going into teaching or museum work, and as it worked out, um, I was able to work for the foundation, get my uh, graduate degree mm-hmm. at the Citadel, and opportunities just just continued to open for me mm-hmm. to be able to manage the Edmondson Austin House uh, after I graduated with the put with my master's degree from the Citadel. Uh, that was back in, in 95. And then uh, opportunity out at, at, at uh, Middleton Place opened, and, and I was able to move out there and manage both house museums. And then grew from there to manage all of the interpretive programming. Um, and it's just, uh, it's been an amazing uh, journey. I've sort of done everything from being the, the weekend docent in the house, you know, museum downtown to where I am now. And it's, it's just, I'm just passionate about it. I, you know, um, I think Middleton Place is, is one of those places like, you know, if you and I were oil men, we would we'd probably say we're in the shale sands of North Dakota. It's just a resource that can't be fully explained without going to visit it and, and really sinking your teeth in because the history of the Middletons and the Middleton family just reaches out to so much of South Carolina and our nation's history. All right. Well, let's talk about
0: that. Because the foundation has involved all sorts of kinfolk, and it's not just in appreciating there, but in terms of the house interpretation, family heirlooms have have come back, a recognition that history is more than just the big house, which, by the way, y'all were one of the first to recognize and appreciate and interpret African-American life on a plantation in South Carolina. So let's get into that story because that's an evolution as well. And and Charles, that predates Tracy a little bit. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it really is. I mean, the fact is that when I inherited Middleton Place, there was no endowment or pile of money behind it. And so we obviously had to go out and borrow money to keep things together. We we had a much smaller budget then, less than $100,000 a year. Wow. And we uh, needed capital in order to expand. So we were able to borrow some money and the first thing that happened other than the, the annual maintenance and all of that was to expand from just the garden to include the plantation stable yards, which was really the genesis of getting into studying African-American history. Mm-hmm. Because the plantation stable yards interpreted the work that was done there during the 18th and 19th century, which predominantly, even though we didn't talk about it at the time, was done by slave labor. Mm-hmm. You know, Walter, 40 years ago, people didn't talk about
0: slavery. Whether they were black or white, they they were uncomfortable with it. Well, other places 40 years ago, they would have referred to servants. Yes, yes. Um. But
1: uh, <clears throat> we didn't get into to real African-American research until the 80s. And I think we were helped kind of bringing the, the, the interpretation of African-Americans out of the closet, if you will, by the Sally Hemming events at Monticello. Mm -hmm. We started by perhaps being very uh, cautious at first by simply interpreting the lives of two former slaves who had become freedmen, about whom we had a lot of records. And Tracy became involved at that time and was helpful in opening what we today call Eliza's House, that at the time was a house that was lived in by a couple named Ned and Chloe. And people would come and and see the rooms that had been put together with a blue ribbon committee showing how they lived. It was much of an indoor-outdoor thing with a swept yard in front Mm -hmm. that really became the living room and with cooking and washing and so on in the back and only two rooms in the house with a ladder going up to the attic for children to stay. But we had that exhibit that, that opened in the early 90s And people by then would would talk about slavery and they'd say, hey, this is interesting. We like seeing this exhibit, but what about the history of slavery at Middleton Place? And so we spent 10 years that Tracy was very much involved in with uh, other of his colleagues and uh, studied what that story was. We found the names of almost 3,000 at the time. that's grown beyond 3,000 now of slaves whom we learned were owned by the Middleton family from 1738 to 1865. And when you first go into the exhibit, there's a large panel on the wall that lists all those names. And then the names are annotated with whatever information we learned about them from slave lists or letters or diaries or anything that we had. So they're they're annotated with uh, the names of people in their families, with what their occupations were, plowmen or herdsmen, uh, bricklayer, a carpenter, a schooner captain, whatever they did and with their values that were easy to come upon because they were listed in the inventories of estates because Mm -hmm. slaves were considered property and so when someone died they listed all the names of their slaves and their value. What we were really trying to do was to let every aspect of Middleton Place be brought out to tell the whole story. So uh, the stable yards Began that storytelling about the people that worked there, and then today Eliza's house is really the center of research and
0: study of African American history. There, Charles, y'all were really pioneering when you when you did this when y'all started Eliza's house and you began to talk about slavery, refer to enslaved persons. You could still go places in South Carolina where they talked about servants, so they didn't even talk about what happened outside the big house. So. The fact that you met with such a positive reaction I think speaks volumes. I currently sit on the board of the International African American Museum, the proposed museum, and mm. the first thing that's come up is they refer to what happened at Middleton Place and the demonstrative rice field that you've got. They're going to make sure that when people leave that museum that they go to Middleton and other places so they can see what it's all about. Right.
2: We really hope that that museum is it It takes on this sort of hub and spoke model that it it'll be a hub in downtown Charleston and spokes out to Middleton place and Drayton Hall like learn to learn more yeah the stable yards program has really been it's sort of an incremental process uh that's been ongoing really since you know since it was started in nineteen seventy but as we learn more and add more and as the audience changes, we're able to take steps and make it even more and more rich experience. Well, let's talk about that. Any kind of cultural institution
0: today, you're competing with the Disney World. You're competing with this, that, and the other. You have to engage your audience. And you all have done this in many different ways without dumbing it down. So let's talk, Tracy, about the evolution of, of the stable yard.
2: Well, you know, when the stable yards first opened, it was interesting and, and okay to have a milk cow or to have hogs in a hog crawl, to have sheep on the greensward grazing. But as we evolve, you know, we we get more and more interested and we learn more and more about the specific breeds as an example that the Middletons would have had. So today, instead of having hogs in a hog crawl, we have a, a, a rare heritage breed that was known to exist in the 18th and 19th century called guinea hogs. They relate to the slave trade and help us learn more about the enslaved people. Carrying it further, instead of having um, uh, just the normal sheep, we have an old variety of sheep that were, you know, that were kept on plantations. Right, so, where do you so that sort of thing? You know, I know where to get heritage seeds because I'm a gardener. Where do you get heritage animals? You make contacts. It's all about relationships, it, uh, and, and today it's easier than it has been before because the the food and the the uh, foodie industry in Charleston is is very interested in some of these things, and also the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy out of North Carolina has been doing some tremendous work, and they're a great partner of ours. But that's just one example of how you start with a baseline, and you, and you make incremental steps to enrich the experience. The heritage breeds aren't just because
1: we like heritage breeds, but they're all based on documentation. For instance, there are letters from Williams Middleton, who was there in the middle of the 19th century, Mm -hmm. explaining to his sister that he had just acquired some cashmere goats and that he was sending their hair, they didn't call it wool, but they called it hair, cashmere goat hair to France to be processed. And then he writes and talks about having bought in Constantinople some water buffalo because he saw them working in wet fields and thought that they might be good in in our rice fields and uh, brought them back and developed a herd of of water buffalo, so that the heritage breeds we have today are water buffalo, cashmere goats, Gulf Coast sheep, guinea hogs, even down to the chickens, the Dominique chickens that would have been there at the time.
0: What about the water buffalo working
1: in the in the rice fields? Well, there are lots of stories surrounding that, but I think one of the most interesting is that the, the man who was in charge of the stable yards at the time wanted to learn more about water buffalo at the time that we got interested, got this information about Williams Middleton having bought some. And he Googled water buffalo and came up with the Water Buffalo Association of America, w- complete with a telephone number. He learned from their website, first of all, that the Water Buffalo Association dated back to 1974 when they claimed the first water buffalo came to America. And this, this fellow had the, the fun of calling the Water Buffalo Association, speaking with the, ended up speaking with the president of the American Water Buffalo Association, and and ex- explained that he was calling to inform him that that uh, actually water buffalo came long before 1974, some 120 years earlier, and he was afraid that he was going to be you know shouted off the telephone. <laughs> but what in fact happened was that 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 they felt uh, enhanced by this news. And it, made, it gave more credibility to the American Water Buffalo Association to have animals that had been around longer. And they ended up being so interested and excited about it that the American Water Buffalo Association sent Middleton Place two water buffalo calves that when they arrived weighed about 150 pounds. And now they, they each weigh maybe 1,300 or 1,400 pounds. Wow. And they're
0: only about four years old now. That's a great story. But let's, let's talk about a, a family story, too, because you've begun to have reunions at Middleton Place. Mm-hmm. And you call them Middleton Place reunions, not Middleton Family reunions. Isn't that correct? Well, we,
1: call it, we, we now call the reunion the reunion of the descendants of Middleton Place. Okay. And what you're getting at is that, that they include not just Middleton family descendants, but African American family descendants. Mm-hmm. And it's harder to trace to, to have bona fide certification that their lineage goes back. But the policy has been to welcome any African-Americans who know that they have a family history that's associated
0: with Middleton place. Well, you've got some exhibits in the house. I believe there was a woman in, was in Chicago, Tracy. There
2: was, I believe you're thinking about Ashley Sack.
0: And, yes, and, yes, and, that's and, it. That's right,
2: it. and Ashley's sack was was found in Nashville, Tennessee, and it it, it recounts the story of a, a young slave girl named Ashley who was separated from her mother, and her mother gave her the sack and said, in this sack it's filled with my love. And, uh, and it came from Nashville, and it just so happens that Uh, Nashville has a a, a large family of African Americans who are direct descendants, and and they're one of the families that we can trace their their ancestry back. It's in the documentation. They actually identified themselves, and we worked with them to, to put it all together before the 2011 reunion, and it was so fantastic they all were able to come from Nashville and uh, and be a part of it. You don't have them every year, do you, the reunions?
1: No, the the first one we had at the 250th anniversary of Middleton Place, which was in 1991, and uh, that was just the European-American family. And then the first African-American one was in 2000 and 2006. Six, 2006. Because there had been a previous reunion in, in 2001 that uh, discussed including African American descendants. And uh, it was very well received, the idea was very well received, and when we discussed it, one woman, a young woman in the back of the room, stood up and said she was really excited about the prospect of doing this, because she had always, quote unquote, always wanted to learn more about the other side of her family, and that's the way she referred to it. And so the, the first experience was in 2006, and then we had one in 2011, and the next will be 2016. They're now happening every five years. Mm-hmm. And what it's called is the Reunion of the Descendants of Middleton Place. Mm-hmm. And started off, Walter, very timorously. You know, people not really knowing what they were getting into and, and and a lot of kind of hesitation. But by the end of the weekend, people really came to realize that they had a shared history mm-hmm. and they enjoyed talking about it.
0: And it was it was very informative and and very healing I think in a lot of ways. It's interesting that this is beginning to happen more and more. Yes, it used to be it wasn't just white folks who didn't want to talk about slavery. Persons of color didn't want to talk right. much about slavery. The descendants of William Gilmore Sims over at Woodlawn Plantation have done the same thing, and mm-hmm. in fact, Felicia Furman from Greenville, who is a direct descendant of William Gilmore Sims, produced a a movie called Shared History and it includes the black and white descendants of Woodlawn. Uh, there may be more of a family connection there than some people initially mm-hmm. thought, but that was part of the story as it developed. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgars Journal and I'm talking with Charles Duell and Tracy Todd of Middleton Place Foundation. Where does Middleton Place Foundation stand now? I mean, I know you've got a very nice endowment uh, it's set up to run for the future, not dependent necessarily on the family. I mean, it is a, a non-profit trust. Yeah. And do you have to be a Middleton to be on the board? No. Okay. Now we do have some Middleton descendants,
1: but it certainly isn't a requirement. It's a requirement that the board members have a deep and abiding interest in Middleton Place uh-huh. and uh, have something to, to bring to the table. But it's a, it's a very good and strong board
0: and a, Included a, a number of distinguished people whom you know. You know, I, I was thinking about the foundation board and when you created your movie, Phoenix Rising. hmm The story of the candlesticks mm-hmm. and how that sort of was the beginning of recreation. Let's, let's share that story with our listeners. Tracy, you want to start?
2: When Arthur Middleton, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, uh, he and his wife, Mary, traveled to Europe and spent about three years there and there's a number of things in the, in the House Museum collection that relate to their time. there. Um, their portrait was done by Benjamin West, and they um, purchased a number of pieces, beautiful pieces of English silver. And, and, you know, as you can imagine, when a, a highly valued and treasured piece like, like an Apern or, or a family portrait, or in this case, eight sterling silver candlesticks, when mom and dad die... You know, things get divided. You know, one daughter may want uh, a pair, and, and another daughter may want another pair. The same as we would experience today.
1: Let me let me pick up on that. Let me say that, first of all, they're not just any old silver candlesticks. They're magnificent columnar candlesticks that, in their own right, would be of great importance. And we didn't know anything about them because what Tracy related as to Henry Middleton's family going to England in 1768. Is all very true, but we didn't know what they did or what they bought, and so it's come back, not not generated by our knowledge of their history, but simply by these. By after the foundation was started, a uh, Middleton descendant in the Green Spring Valley of Maryland sent down a couple of candlesticks that we looked at and were kind of surprised because they were earlier than we thought. They were kind of neo neo kind of more Greek revival period. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that they were by the hallmarks, of course, English hallmarks, you can identify exactly when and where a piece was made and who made it. Mm -hmm. And the hallmarks uh, identified this pair of candlesticks as having been made in London in 1771 by John Carter. So as we go through this, this journey, we discover things along the way all the time. And the research people went back to Arthur Middleton's inventory of his estate and found that there were eight candlesticks listed in his estate made in London in 1771 by John Carter and about five years after the first fair pair came the second pair arrived and then from Charleston a descendant generously came forth and said well I have a pair of these that I've seen on the table I'd like to lend them to you and they were on loan so for A long time, during the 80s and 90s, we had six candlesticks on the table of these magnificent large candlesticks. And then the pair from Charleston was converted, which we hope for and often does happen, from a loan to a gift. And they were given to the foundation, so we now own uh, these six candlesticks. And only within the last year, Walter, a couple from Maranac, New York, who had come to a family reunion and been asked to bring back treasures mm-hmm. to share with other descendants, showed up with the fourth pair and uh, excitedly uh, loaned them to the foundation and then ended up with having a, a gift of them made to the foundation. Wow. And so now all eight candlesticks are on a dining room table that were given to the foundation by the descendants of of a daughter of Arthur Middleton's and obviously descendants of Arthur Middleton's also. And her portrait by Edward Marchand is at one end of the dining room. And her husband's portrait by Rembrandt Peel is at the other end of the dining room. And they look down on a table that has her parents' candlesticks and, and a pern and family china on a table that belonged to them Right next door to the room where the Benjamin West painting of her father before he signed the Declaration of Independence, with his wife and her elder brother, who was to become governor of South Carolina and Minister Plenipotentiary to Russia, another Henry Middleton. So these objects, that are all interrelated, have kind of brought back to us the story, that we know that they sat for Benjamin West, in 1771 and. We can visualize, if you will, them going down into old Bond Street and going to their silver agent and kind of getting on a roll and buying an apron and candlesticks. And in fact, some footed trays that we have that were all dated by their hallmark 1771. So it's very exciting to, that there are different ways that the story of history can come about, not just written history, but from doc- letters and documents, but also through objects mm-hmm. And then learning about more about those objects. So we're very fortunate to, uh,
0: well you mentioned them. Henry Milton and being minister plenipotentiary. The United States did not have ambassadors till after the Civil War because we were a republic and ambassadors sounded too royal and so forth. So the term was minister plenipotentiary. And when he was in Russia, was it the Tsar's funeral that right. you have right. one of the only illustrated copies of in your collection?
2: That's correct. This Henry is the third generation owner of Middleton Place. Uh, he was the, he was the first son of of Arthur, the signer of the Declaration of Independence, and he he became Minister Plenipotentiary to Russia, eighteen twenty to eighteen thirty, and in eighteen twenty five is when Tsar Alexander the first, the famous Tsar who defeated Napoleon, mm-hmm. died, and his funeral procession was very meticulously recorded drawn out and annotated and how many copies were made originally we really don't know but they're very rare today Uh, and we're told that there's only one other one in existence. Again that is
0: on exhibit and we talk about the House Museum and, and the first floor is and you do have rooms on the second floor too but you also have exhibit space on the second floor of objects like the sack and like this particular item which again, tell the story of the multi-generational story of of Middleton Place.
2: When you go to the second floor, you know, one of the interesting things you see in the library is you see an early copy of the Declaration of Independence, Mm -hmm. and you get to, you see exactly how that document looked with all the signatures on it, all the signatures from South Carolina Mm -hmm. and the other colonies, including Arthur Middleton. Mm -hmm. And then, and then just on the other side of a secretary, you see a a copy of the Ordinance of Secession. Mm -hmm with Middleton signatures on it. And it's interesting to be able to to go from the revolution and talk about the revolutionary ideology and then uh, right beside it is a, a exact replica of the Ordinance of Secession, actually a, a copy of one of those that were given to some of the signatories. Well, Holder,
1: we used to say that, that the signers of the Ordinance of Secession were really destroying what their grandfathers created in the Declaration of Independence, and now we're, we're saying and we believe that the American Revolution was a war of secession, much as the as the Confederate War was a war of secession.
0: So there are more similarities, perhaps, than there are differences. Or well, actually, the, actually, secession was a revolution. People think it was a conservative—it was actually a very radical step. Yeah, And the men of 1860 hearkened back to 1776, and the men of 1776 hearken back to the 1719 revolution when the colonists overthrew the Lord's proprietor. So there were Mm -hmm. three generations. The late Lewis Jones up at at Warford used to talk about three he called them three secessions secession one, secession two, and secession three. People forget about the 1719 revolution, but it was the only honest to goodness overthrow of a legitimate government in the colonies prior to the american revolution and it was a pretty gutsy thing because by overthrowing the proprietors they committed treason and the proprietors could have had all those folks executed anyway. well, you
1: know that uh that the first arthur middleton grandfather of the signer of the declaration of independence that his grandfather was also an arthur who was president of the council of 1719 and the leader
0: of the group that threw out the Lord's proprietors. Yeah, that story is one of that in the Revolution, American Revolution, 1776, the stories that I keep trying to tell people, important parts of our history. You know, we, we are in the 150th year of observance of the American Civil War, which is about to come to a, a close. But 1776, the war in South Carolina, the revolution in South Carolina is extremely important part Mm -hmm. of our history. Mm -hmm. 1719 for South Carolinians is, again, just to go with your secession and Lewis Jones definition of South Carolinians deciding to overthrow a superior authority. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't anything new in 1860, and we've got letters and papers of the men of 1860 referring to 76, and men in 76 referring to 1719. A multi-generational story. Tracy recently found, for the Edmondson-Alston House,
1: a piece of South Carolina currency. I think it's a five-dollar bill. Is that right? Yeah. And what's interesting is that the people illustrated on that 1858 issue of, of South Carolina currency, but on the bill, the people that were the heroes that were illustrated, were Thomas Sumter, and William Moultrie, yeah. and Francis Marion, and and so they were they were then in, in 1858. Looking back to the 1770s and 80s to their heroes of the American
0: Revolution. In that decade of the 1850s, and some of your forebears were involved in this too, and that was the creation of the South Carolina Historical Society mm-hmm. with the idea that South Carolinians were not understanding their history well enough. In fact, Pettigrew, James Lewis Pettigrew was the first president and in his first address said, our children today think the world started... When those pilgrims got off the Mayflower at Plymouth Rock, and he went on to say why the preservation and study of South Carolina history was important. That was the genesis of, of of that organization, which is now 160 years old, still going strong. So I think Charles, when you mentioned the the fact that history is more than document, it's 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 objects, it's letters. It's the physical interpretation that you present there that tells the story not just of Middleton Place, but of South Carolina and the United States. I don't think that's a stretch. I mean, that's a part of everybody's history. That's what's so important. Mm-hmm. Tracy, that's been your career to help make part of that happen.
2: Absolutely. It, it has. It's been an amazing journey, and I'm and and still looking forward to to much more because, you know, just the story of the candlesticks, it It really just happened. it just uh, we we didn't know about that the family that uh, owned that last pair until two thousand ten, so it, those stories are continuing to happen year after year. Well, there's a story I think I remember
0: too about you track some of the paintings that were looted during the war by the Union forces through a diary of one Doc- of those officers, and Dr. Henry
2: Orlando Marcy, who was with the thirty fifth u s color troop.
0: Okay, well, let's tell that because again, that's a fascinating story of how things were reclaimed.
2: Well, and it's very timely because it was just February twenty-second, eighteen sixty-five. We just commemorated the hundred-fiftieth anniversary of that event. That's when the house—that's right—the main
0: house and one and one wing were burned. Now, the the surviving wing was it also
2: burned or? It was also burned, but the least badly damaged of the three and. And could be salvaged. They came back uh, in 1869, put a new roof on it, um, and improved it a bit, and made it their home. Let's talk about that diary and how you were able to track down some paintings. Williams Middleton did the tracking down, and it's been it was an interesting story that, uh, you know, he lost so much during the war, during the burning, during the looting that went on for months and months afterwards. So much was taken from Middleton Place. Of course, he saved a lot, and, of course, we're, we have a, the rich collection today. Thank goodness that so much was saved, but other things were lost. And And Dr. Marcy, who was a, a surgeon with the 35th U.S. Color Troop, happened to be at Middleton Place the day it was burned, and he wrote about it in his diary, and he even wrote about taking things himself. But after the war, Marcy ends up he goes back to Boston, and because he was a prominent man, and of course, Williams Middleton has connections around the country, he learned about Dr. Marcy being at Middleton Place, and they developed a correspondence in the 1870s. And Williams Middleton sent Marcy a, a, an inventory of things that were missing, including about 21 paintings, and we have that inventory in the in the archives today. And they developed this conversation back and forth about where the paintings taken, where the paintings... Purchased, and we really don't know the answer to that. We have the sort of a, a yin and yang, you know, robbing versus saving, robbing the place versus saving things. Um, but what we do know for sure is three of those paintings that were listed on Williams Middleton's inventory of things that were missing are currently there now. They seem to have been returned. We don't um, know how
1: they come back, how they
2: came back, but we do know that the last word for Marcy
1: was "look." yes, I have some of these pictures, and I'm willing to return them to you, but I've spent a lot of money having them transported and maintained and stored, and if you will reimburse me for my expenses, I'll be happy to send them back to you. So that's the last word we have from Marcy, until his grandson shows up on a tour of the House Museum. And an astute guide, fortunately, uh, when he raised his hand, and, and she was telling the story about these paintings that were that had come back to Middleton Place, and he raised his hand and he said, well, my name is Marcy, and I wonder if that could possibly be my grandfather, and it turned out it was, and we discovered from him that, that he knew that his grandfather's diary was at the University of North Carolina, and we were able to get a copy from them, and that's how we have all this information today.
0: Well, the internet is wonderful, but old-fashioned research, the the serendipity <laughs> of of finding something, I'm working with with a young high school student today, and it's about the 20th century South Carolina. But he is going through the joy of discovery, and you just see the look on his face yeah. when one thing leads to another that he hadn't planned on. Yeah. But it's it's there. Wow.
2: And I know you you experienced that when you edited the Robert Pringle letter book. Oh.
0: The Pringle, nobody knew who Robert Pringle was except for the Pringles. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the earliest continuous record we have of life in Charleston is from the letter book of Robert Pringle and then finding out who his connections were around the world. Yeah. I mean, every time I hear people today in the 21st century say, we're part of a global economy in South Carolina, well, that's not exactly news and it's certainly not new. Even in the late seventeenth century, we were part of a global yeah. economy, and we certainly were at least until eighteen sixty-five.
2: That letter book is one of my favorite references to to, to fall back on, and and just to, not just to fall back on it, but to dig into it is so interesting. And and that's the, that's the same time period of Middleton Place. It's early seventeen forties, if I'm right. Yeah, and in
1: the society of Charleston, South Carolina, there were many marriages, as you know, between the Middleton family and the the Pringle family, and the Alston family,
0: and the Manigo family, and we could go on and on, but... I have used the term vast cousinage to describe 18th century South Carolina. Initially, the late George Rogers, the historian, took exception to that, and then I said, George, let's just... I took a colonial assembly and started going out as to how kinship patterns, and I said, George, I hadn't even gotten into business relationships. So, can I ask you a question? Sure. As an historian, tell us why,
1: to date or at least until the late 20th century, the history of America discussed the uh, bridge at Concord and the beginning of the American Revolution, all generating in the area of Boston and New England, and and even subsequent to that, very little mention of South Carolina. Charles, you just
0: pressed my hot button. We could go on for three (laughs) hours here. But
1: but I'm just saying, why? Why, Well, well, didn't you have a predecessor? Didn't George Rogers have a predecessor who might have said something about it?
0: Actually, they didn't too much. I mean, we already know in 1855 that history was being written from a New England perspective. But then after 1865, South Carolina really drops out. Even Virginia to The Virginians were always the good Southerners, but the South has dropped out of the national narrative. In fact, I even have a, a talk that I gave to the Cincinnati a few years ago in, in Washington for the George Rogers Clark Lecture was, you know, it didn't happen up north. You know, the revolution, not just the battles, but the the resolutions that were coming out of, out of Charleston, out of North Carolina, the ladies of, of Edenton and their boycott of tea. Blood was shed in the South in this state and in Virginia before the Declaration of Independence. It wasn't just at Lexington and Concord. Sure. So that's a story I hope I hope people now are beginning to understand. and And I know that civic organizations, patriotic organizations like the Colonial Dames and the Cincinnati are, making a point of telling the story from a more balanced approach, mm-hmm. what really right. happened. But like I say, Charles, we can talk about that for, but right. for what I, I think what our listeners would like to know about now is let's talk about Middleton Place Foundation and the future. Where are y'all headed?
1: Well, the foundation uh, is on on firm footing, personnel-wise, financially, and so on. You know, we have an annual budget of about $6 million.
0: That's quite a step from $100,000. It
1: it is. It's a a large budget for a relatively nationally, relatively small organization. But we're told that to really Mm -hmm. be safe and healthy, we're told by the National Trust for Historic Preservation, that an historic site ought to have three or four times its annual budget in endowment. Today, we only have maybe about one time, or we have maybe approaching $6 million. But uh, we need to have 20 to $25 million, really, to, to meet those standards of the National Trust. However, the advantage that Middleton Place Foundation does have is that, at least in the current climate of interest in Charleston and interest in South Carolina, we operate on a balanced budget where we don't spend more money than we take in operationally. So we're not living off the endowment. And uh, and so many historic properties do live off the endowment. And when the market crashes, their living expenses have more problem than they mm-hmm. did before. So we're lucky in that regard, but we still need to continue to build a safety net. We are definitely, and Tracy can address this because he's uh, Right in the middle of it, we're advancing educational programs big time. Uh, you want to talk about co-curriculum kind of activities in our
2: large Midwest Vaco grant and where we're going with all of that? Well, you know, Middleton Place is, when you say the, the future, I, I think it's, you know, it's all about history. So we're looking forward and looking back at the same time, you know, to keep our eye looking forward, but keep our eye on the mission of Middleton Place, too, which is to which is to preserve and and, uh, and educate. And Charles mentioned curriculum-based programming has become very, very important to the foundation and being able to engage students on uh, multiple levels beyond history and science and language arts and even math. Um, there's so many opportunities, you know, uh, at Middleton Place, it's such a huge resource that we can bring in curriculum standards from all these different areas and uh, engage students. We're doing right now between t- five and ten thousand school students per year, so it's quite a big program, a large program, and it's important to us. Bringing in and bringing in inner city kids, um, we have a program where Mead Faco has funded schools that are title one schools that they don't have the financial backing to be able to get the buses and to be able to pay for lunch and pay the small admission fee that we charge but even though even that can be a problem so that helps uh, get those title one students out there and a lot of those kids are you know they're inner their inner city they've never heard the story of the of enslaved people they've never heard how creative they those enslaved people were and how they created a culture within the uh, slave community. And it's really been uh, eye-opening, not only for them, but for the staff and for for me to be able to see that happen. You know, one of the things that's a little different about Middleton Place as a historic site is is we right now are shunning technology. We want you to have less screen time. So put your cell phone away or put your tablet away and, and come and engage with the heritage breed animals, engage with the costumed interpreters, um, and have a personal experience. And that's that's what we're cultivating now.
0: Well, that's that's, that's another hot button. In ter- I, I believe in very traditional, you know, conversations, person to person. And I'm giving a talk next week and somebody says, well, what are all your AVs? Is it going to be PowerPoint." I said, no, if I can't use words to describe what I want to say and interact with you, then I don't need to be there. And, and I, I really appreciate the approach that y'all have taken, because if it's on the screen, it's not real. It's just not real. Go in the stable yard, and those inner city kids may not have seen a pig, you know. Pork comes in a little plastic package that you get at the Piggly Wiggly. They've never seen
2: a milk cow
1: or touched one. Or the demonstration
0: vegetables
1: in a in a garden that's in the stable yards.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Seeing broccoli growing. Or what does
0: okra look like when it grows? And I hope you're growing the real okra and not the, the spineless you know, if you got if you gotta pick okra, you gotta you gotta it's Oh yeah. It's not a pleasant <laughs> task. Gentlemen, I regret this. Alfred's giving me the wind up sign. Right. So any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? Charles Dill, let's we'll start with you.
1: Well, you asked about the, the presence and the future of the Foundation, and uh, this year, in 2015, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Foundation's first activity, which was opening the House Museum before it took over the entire property. We're pleased with the way it has gone to date. As we've said, we're all about history, but we're essentially an educational institution we're here to help you help history be recognized and and uh,
2: part of people's lives, okay Tracy well, Walter, uh, I just want to thank you. It's a great to be here with you, South Carolina's historian for this hour, and I just would like to encourage people to keep checking MiddletonPlace.org. dot org go to go to the website and see we have we have special programming all year long. This spring, the foundation will be planting Carolina Gold Rice again in April. So it's a great time to come out, and you could have as much participation as you like. Uh, with a lot of these special events, we engage the public in all sorts of different ways, and that information can be found by going to MiddletonPlace.org.
0: Okay, and we'll have a link from Walter Edgar's Journal website to your website, so Thank folks can, can do that. Charles Duell and Tracy Todd, both with Middleton Place Foundation, thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, Walter. Thank you. Mm -hmm. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I've known Charles Duell and Tracy Todd for a long time, and the conversations about Middleton Place and American history, particularly the Revolution and the colonial period, we could have talked for about three or four hours. But I hope what you got out of our conversation today is that the story of Middleton Place is not just a story about South Carolina. It's an American story, and it's a story that has had an impact on all of us who live here. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.